Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! You folks know how much I've been looking forward to this ever since early June with Laurel Canyon, Allison Elwood, Chris Hillman, and all the music we've done. We'll get a kick out of this. Uh, this is our pal Roger McGuinn. He, of course, uh, one of the all-time greats, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. The Birds in 1964. He's got so much to discuss, and we're going to have some fun here on this Wednesday program in the middle of the winter time in February here on uh, Mad Dog Unleashed. Roger, pleasure is mine. Nice to talk to you. How are you today, pal? Okay? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Nice, nice to be on your program. Thank you for inviting me. Y- you got it, Roger. And uh, I've been watching lots of old clips with you. Boy, thank goodness you're driving around your bicycle in 1956 with that little transistor right. radio on. Transistor, Go yeah, ahead. Transistor radio. heard Elvis come over there. Well, since my baby left, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's a new little street that I was hooked as soon as I heard that. I went, whoa, what is that? It was so different from anything else on the radio. And remember, you had done a lot of electronic stuff. You were in electronics with your grandfather. It took you to a lot of places in Chicago. So you had a little outlet anyway. And here it is. Yeah. You're driving your little Schwinn bike around downtown Chicago. And there yeah, comes yeah. Elvis in 1956. Look at that, huh? I know. It was a a great time. It was a great... um, My transistor radio was my favorite gadget at that point. And then, you know, I'd ride my bicycle around and I tuned into WJJD, which was a rock station at the time. And Elvis came over and I always... I said, I got to get a guitar and do that. That's what I want to do. And your parents bought your guitar that next Christmas? Is that how it worked when you were 14 years old? It was uh, my 14th birthday. I got I got a harmony guitar. It was uh, uh, the action was so high you couldn't play it. You know, it's like, but it looked great. And then they finally traded it in, got me a good guitar I could play. How did your parents feel about that? You know, a lot of parents in the early 50s with Elvis, you know, they wanted to backtrack from Elvis, different generation. Sounds like your parents and your father especially were all in favor of you delving into rock and roll music. Is that correct? Well, they were, yeah. They, they were. They kind of didn't believe it at first. Uh, my, I remember I played something for my dad, and he said, "I'll bet you can't do that again." And I played it again, and he went, "Oh, okay." So, uh, and then I got on a teen show, and um, on TV there was a thing called Time for Teens on television, and my dad was working with this guy. Um, uh, Marty something, and Marty saw it on TV, and he said, "The kids got it. Let them go." Wow. Yeah. See, you you have this natural ability. It's obvious. It's like a baseball player or an athlete. You can tell right away if he's got a little something special when he's a teenager. As soon as you got that guitar, people who were in the know could tell this kid's got a special knack here and you were smart enough to propel that in a career. Talk about that. But for you know, that, that's not, a, that's not enough to make a career because uh, just because they have a natural ability. I, I went to school for it. I went to the old town school of folk music uh, for right. three years and learned how to finger pick and, you know, sing harmonies and play the banjo and 12 string guitar. And that, that's my roots. And so you really got to, even if you have some talent, you got to work it. You got to, you know, really work hard at it. Oh, absolutely. It's not just talent. It helps to have the talent. It helps to get you started. But you're right. Uh, you have to have that. And then you got some breaks there in the late 50s, Roger. You got you're an 18 year old kid. You got uh, older groups wanting to get you involved. You graduate high school. They bring you out to California. Somebody saw you at 18, 19 years of age to get you going. Let me hear that story. Go ahead. I was really I was 17. I was still 17. And uh, I was in high school and I went down to the Gate of Horn, which was a wonderful folk club in Chicago where all the big time folks singers like Odetta and Judy Collins played. And one night there was a jam session going on with the Limelighters and Theodore Bikel. And I walked in with my hard shell cases. I had a banjo and a guitar. And Alex Hosselev, one of the Limelighters, said, hey, what do you got there, kid? And I said, well, I got a banjo and a guitar. He said, oh, great, break out the banjo. We got too many guitars going. And I played banjo with him till five in the morning. And that's when he wanted to hire me as a backup musician. So uh, I said, sure, I'd like the gig. And he gave me a record to take home. And he said, meet us back at one o'clock in the afternoon for an audition. This is five in the morning. I stayed up all night. So I went to the audition and I got through it. And they said, great, you got the job. When can you start? And I said, well, I get out of high school in June. And this is February. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did your parents feel letting their son go out to L.A. right out of high school to be in a, a musician, uh, to be a musician? Were they in favor of that? A lot of parents they, would be. They, they were yours? very cool about it. They, they were writers and a lot of their friends were actors and in, in show business. So it wasn't a big uh, leap of faith for them. 
All right. Now, a young kid in the late 50s in Los Angeles playing with an older group of guys musically. Give me some thoughts on fitting in with that. Go ahead. Well, I was I turned 18 when I was in L.A. at the Ashgrove. I recorded uh, Tonight in Person with the Limelighters. It was a live album recorded at the Ashgrove. And and they treated me like a peer, you know, so I, they didn't really uh, treat treat me like a kid. That so was important. I felt good about it. And then you ran into Bobby Darren, Roger. Uh, and uh, Bobby Darren seemed to have, uh, in your young days here, before you you know, got the birds together in 64, Bobby Darren seems to be very, very influential. I've seen some interviews you talk about. Darren told you how to handle it music- musically. You sort of learned how to perform. Give me a little rundown on Barry Darren. Go ahead. Yeah, well, Bobby saw me playing with the Chad Mitchell Trio at the Crescendo Club in L.A. We were opening up for Lenny Bruce, and and Bobby was out in the audience. I guess he was there to see Lenny. And he came backstage after the show and said, I'm thinking about putting a folk act in my show, and I'd like to hire you. And I said, well, I already got a job with the Chad Mitchell Trio. And he said, what are they paying you? And I told him, he said, I'll double it. So I started working for Bobby. And Bobby was a good folk singer as well as a good rock singer. And and he could do that Frank Sinatra stuff like Mac the Knife. And he, he was incredible. So I, I learned a lot from Bobby. I, I used to follow him around and ask him questions about how to make it in the business. And he said, well, one thing you got to do is get up in front of audiences as much as you can. It doesn't matter how good you are in front of your mirror at home. You got to test it under fire. And I did that. And that was a good thing. Another thing he said, rock and roll. He said, because I was a folk singer at that point. He said, you right. got to get into rock and roll. If you get into rock and roll, you can do anything else. You can be a movie actor. You can you know, be a politician. You can do anything. So the rock and roll from Bobby Darren was important. I know you went to uh, Greenwich Village in the early 60s, too. And that's the first time you saw Dylan. You and Dylan have a wonderful relationship. And you can tell how much he respects you. Give me an idea here the first time you saw Dylan in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. Go ahead. I went to Gertie's Folk City, which was a club, a folk club in the village. Uh, and Bob was not signed to any record deal at that point. He was, it was just a hootenanny. And he got up and he sang a couple of Woody Guthrie songs. I don't think he'd written any songs by that point. But there was something unique about Bob because when like Cisco Houston or one of the other folk singers would get up there, the girls wouldn't scream. But when Bob Dylan got up there, they did. So I went, this is something special, you know. And I didn't really know him at that point. I said, you know, I said hi to him and stuff, but we didn't get to know each other until after the birds recorded his Mr. Tambourine Man and got a number one hit with it. We'll talk about that in a sec. So you saw the great talent of Dylan right away, huh, Roger, in 1960-61? You saw that right away? I did. I could see there was something special about the guy. He was was different from the rest of the folk singers. He was. Uh, All right, uh, Roger McGuinn, of course, great to have him with us. Uh, You get back, uh, Darren, uh, the Kingston Trio, all these good things you did, Dylan, you get back to L.A., you knew David Crosby, which I didn't realize. You had met him, I guess, years before. You knew Gene Clark. You were playing at the Troubadour, and you wanted to sort of convert the folk into the rock. And that is really where you uh, individually take off, right around 62, 63, and then you come up with the birds in 64. Talk about that for a sec. Go ahead. Okay, well, what happened between the time I was working for Bobby Darren and the birds was the Beatles came out. And I heard the Beatles and I went, wow, because they were using folk music chords. And I went, that's great, man. You you can take a rock beat and put folk music to it. And that gave me the whole idea of folk and rock together. And I took it down to the clubs in the village and played it for the people there. And they didn't like it. But the guy who ran the club loved it. He put a sign outside that said Beatle impersonations. And I went, oh, this is embarrassing. So I... I, (laughs) Bought myself a one-way ticket to L.A., and I got a gig at the Troubadour, opening up for Hoyt Axton, my old friend. And uh, I was doing the same thing at the Troubadour. I was doing folk and rock, and they didn't like it there either, except for one guy, Gene Clark. And he came backstage after the show and said, hey, I get what you're doing. I like the Beatles. I like folk music. Let's write some songs and see what happens. And as we were doing that, Crosby walked in, and I'd remembered him because I'd met him at the Ashgrove when I was working with the Limelighters. He was an actor in a play. It was called Endgame, and uh, he was, it was in a garbage can. And he'd pop up and do his lines. Pop back. This, is before, this is before Sesame Street. Anyway, he walked in and started singing harmony with Gene and me, and it sounded really good. And he said, I want to be in your band. And I said, well, we don't have a band, David. We're just kind of writing some songs here. He said, oh, come on, man. If I can be in your band, I know this guy's got a recording studio we could use for free. I said, you're in. 
And there you go. Wow. Listen to this. We'll get the hard day's night in a little bit because that was a very significant development for the birds and Roger and everything else, the movie with the Beatles. Did you make enough money? I mean, you know, you're a young kid. You know, you're bouncing around. I mean, I know you got bands. They're giving you plane tickets and everything else. But, boy, that's a tricky uh, – listen, I'm a broadcaster. For me making money when I was 21 years of age, I didn't make any money at all. I had to get my parents to help me and all that. How about you bouncing around uh, Greenwich Village in L.A.? Were you able to survive financially? How would you handle that? Let me hear. It was kind of spotty at times. Uh, I, I remember getting down to uh, having 67 pennies and going down to the convenience store and getting a, a can of sardines I and mean, it was it got down down to that so uh it, I, I didn't starve to death but i was down there and when did your parents first come see you did they see you play with darren did they see you play in the greenwich village did your parents come and see what their kid was up to playing folk music I don't think they really saw, they saw me when I, I'd go to Hootenays at the Gate of Horn, but they didn't see me until I got in the birds and then they come out to the birds gigs around Chicago area. And uh, that was the first time they saw me play. Well, how about that? All right. Now, uh, the birds is fascinating. I am fascinated by this 14 year old, 14 year old little girl who was the daughter of that record producer who you went to go play with the birds before you had an album out. You went to go audition to him, and that 14-year-old girl came downstairs. I love these guys. And a record producer who may have gotten the other way said, all right, boom, I sign him. Tell him that story, Roger. It's fascinating. Okay, well, he was uh, Benny Shapiro. He was a big agent, and he also owned a club in L.A. called the Renaissance. It was a jazz club and poetry and all that. And we did a couple of songs in his living room, and his daughter was upstairs. She came running down the stairs all excited. Daddy, Daddy, who's that? She thought the Beatles were in her living room. And the next day, Miles Davis came over to talk to Benny because it was his agent. And Benny said, you know, these kids came over to audition last night, and my daughter heard them, and she flipped out. She thought they were great. And Miles said, well, kids have a way of knowing things like that. So he picked right. up the phone. He called Goddard Lieberson at Columbia Records. And he said, you know, that rock group you've been looking for? I think I got them for you. And they signed us on his recommendation. Boy, how about that? Uh, how much later did Mr. Tambourine, uh, did you get the idea of Mr. Tambourine and, uh, you know, Jumbo Jack Elliott? I know that they, it was a flawed song and you took care of it. How much later was that, Roger? Is that like months? Is that a year later? Well, give me the chronological time scenario there. Go ahead. It was right around uh, that time. This was in 64, toward the end of 64. Uh, in January 65, we, we recorded the song. The song was a favorite of Jim Dixon, who had become our manager. He was a producer engineer at World Pacific Records in Hollywood. And he took us under his wing. He let us practice on the tape machines after all the sessions were over. And uh, he liked that song, Mr. Cam Reedman. Now, it sounded like this when we first heard it. It sounded like well, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Well, David Crosby said that that's never going to play on the radio. It's uh, that folky 2-4 time. And it was really long. It was about four and a half minutes long. And radio wouldn't play anything over two and two and a half minutes. So I right. cut it down to one verse for time. And I put this thing on the front and the back and uh, we made a 4-4 beat out of it like the Beatles and, and it was 2 minutes and 16 seconds it got played on radio and I, I did Dylan did he have was Dylan shocked about how successful the song was since you know is his song you've put it together was he shocked how successful that song became number one song in the world in 1964 wasn't it Roger well, I remember Joan Baez was having dinner with him in Woodstock, and she said, you know, he had just about enough to drink. And he said, there's nothing happening on the radio, man. Nothing happened except the birds. The birds, that's the only thing happening, man. Wow. So he knew then in that song. All right, now you started. So, so you get this hit song. Did fame. This is fame now. I mean, you, you know, you have a hit song, a hot band, 1964. The Beatles are big. You're like the first big American band here. You, the Stones and, and the Beatles. That's a lot of fame for a lot of young kids. And you're able to handle it for a long period of time. Talk about that for a sec. Go ahead. Well, we didn't handle it as well as that. You know, it was it was tough. It was kind of heady. And uh, it did create divisions in the band, especially because Gene Clark wrote all the songs in the first record. And he got a, a sports car and we were still taking buses around L.A. So there was a little bit of animosity there. But uh, gradually, 
um, everybody left. <laughs> Gene I, left, David left, uh, and then Chris and Michael quit, and, and they started the Flying Burrito Brothers. And I was left holding the bag. But I thought, yes. you know, the birds, the birds is a good brand name. Let's keep it going. So I got Clarence White and those guys. And I have to say, Clarence was an amazing musician to play with. It was like having a machine gun or something. It was totally, totally killing the audience every time. Well, you did a superb job keeping that band together. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, how about Hard Day's Night? I know you all went to go see that, and that changed the way you wanted to go do it uh, and play music, too. Give me some thoughts on that. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the whole band, the Birds, went to see a Hard Day's Night at the Pix Theater in Hollywood, and we watched it, and we went, man, those guys are having a lot of fun. That looks like something we'd like to do. I remember Crosby coming out of the theater and swinging around the lamppost like uh, Gene Kelly and, and singing in the rain. You know, he's going, yeah, this is what I want to do, man. This is so cool. And so we, we went to a place. We got some uh, suits with velvet collars. And we dressed up like the Beatles. Well, somebody stole our suits. So I told John Lennon that he said, I wish they'd stolen our suits. <laughs> but that that movie had a big impact and gave you a lot of thoughts musically of how to play the guitar. Right, Roger? It did. It gave me the idea of the Rickenbacker electric 12 string. Because George Harrison came out with, well, at first he had a Gretsch six string. And then he came out with this other guitar that looked like a Rickenbacker six string. But when he turned sideways, I could see six other tuning pegs sticking out the back. They'd sort of doubled up on it like a classical guitar. And I went, man, that's an electric 12 string. I got to get one of those. So I traded in a nice acoustic uh, 12, 12 string guitar and a five string banjo. And I got the Rickenbacker. And man, that thing made a different sound. Ah, boy, you are so good with the instruments. You love the, you know, I've watched all on YouTube and I have watched all the old uh, spots that you guys did, all the shows, you know, the kids dancing in the background, uh, all the Dylan covers that you did and the band out there. I mean, I saw Laurel Canyon, but I have watched that. It is, I saw the, uh, the times are a changing when you did that on the TV show with the mannequins, with the guns. I mean, I have yeah. watched everything. You have an interesting little story there that is, I know you did the Ed Sullivan. They wouldn't let you play the extra verse and Crosby went nuts, but do you have a little interesting story there, Roger on all those TV appearances that you did in 64, 65, anything cute there that would the audience would like, go ahead. Well, first of all, they made us lip sync, but we weren't live. So the, uh, the microphone, there was no microphone. If you look at, right. at the videos and the, the guitars were not plugged into anything. They're just, you know, is oh, magic, really? of okay. magic of television. Well, later on, we'd plug our guitars into each other's guitars. Just for fun, you know, like. <laughs> so all those had act. So all those things had act. All those those little TV spots that you did in the mid sixties had act doing all those songs, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was all lip sync. And one one time we were at the BBC and we'd come off the road where we'd been in the Midwest and we bought some fireworks and we had these things called cracker balls. And if you step on them, they'd spark. They'd sparkle all over the floor, right? So we were at the BBC and we step on these things and they're sparking all over the floor and they think it's their wires shorting out. And so they shut down the studio for half an hour. There you go. I like that. Interesting. Right, how about Peter Fonda and playing at Jane Fonda's birthday party? And there's Henry Fonda for crying out loud. Legendary yeah. actor going back to the 30s. That's quite a kick. Give me some thoughts on that. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I know, I'd known Peter since I worked with Bobby Darren because uh, Peter and Sandra Dee did a movie called Tammy and the Doctor. And they came to Vegas and saw us at the Flamingo. So I got to know Peter beforehand. And then he would come to Ciro's when we were playing there. He was, a, he was a fan of the birds. And we got to be really good friends. And so when his sister was having a party out in Malibu, he uh, wanted the birds to play there. So he hired us to go out and do that. And uh, Henry was, he was a little upset that we were playing too loud. He kept telling us to turn down and Peter would come say, hey, don't pay any attention to my father. He's just an old man. Wow. I doing that. Boy, unbelievable little story there. I, um, did you, um, I, I know that you, uh, the folk music, the, the greatness, I'm not a musician, a musical historian, so I'll ask you, is the greatness of your band, The Birds, the fact that you were able to make that transition from folk into rock and use folk principles and to make the in, in the mid '60s that you were one of the few bands to able to do that, would that be uh, a storyline for the early success of the Birds '64, '65? I, I think we just happened at the right time. It was a time when folk music was on the wane. It had been uh, very popular since 
uh, the late 50s and had gone into the uh, mid 60s, but it got uh, sort of fell under its own weight. There was a Kootenanny show. There are all these commercial things about folk and folk music was basically, um, you know, people people's music for the back porch. It wasn't commercial music. And when it became over commercialized, it started to fade. And then the Beatles came along and they, they used folk music chords. So they were they were kind of electric folk already. And they gave me the idea of taking old folk songs and souping them up with a Beatle beat. And right. I think it was just the right place at the right time. It was a perfect uh, convergence of two things that folk music was going down and rock and it was coming back. And then we were kind of a Beatle-like band. We were an American band that kind of looked like the Beatles and played something like the Beatles. And so that was uh, a claim to fame. How about living in Southern California in 63, 64, 65? I can't think of a more interesting place to live with all the new, the doors and all the bands and all the creativity that is going on right after the Kennedy assassination and, you know, the world's changing, people are getting annoyed at the Vietnam War. That is a very interesting cultural historical place to think about if you're, say, my age, who missed it by about five or six years, Roger, and you lived it. Give me some, let me some thoughts on that. Go ahead. Well, I'd already been living in Laurel Canyon uh, when I was with uh, Bobby Jaron. I, I was um, roommates with Art Bedell, who was in the new Christie Minstrels, and we, we uh, shared a place up in Wonderland Avenue. And so that was from the early 60s. And then Laurel Canyon kind of grew into uh, a Greenwich Village bohemian neighborhood where again everybody was an artist or a musician and we would go like in the movie we'd go over to each other's houses and play and hang out and right it was it was a great time it was it was like the village only it was up in these uh, beautiful mountains with, with uh, all kinds of flowers and trees and everything it was like being in the country and the creativity that developed out of this is amazing how many great Music. I mean, how many great musicians came out of Southern Cal and obviously the Bay Area, too. But I'm out of the Southern Cal period. Is it just, again, uh, perfect timing like it was as far as your band was concerned? Right place, right time? Yeah, it was just the right time. You know, musicians had been living in Laurel Canyon since uh, earlier than that, since the 50s, I guess. And it just kind of grew and grew and grew. So it became the place to go if you came to L.A. And everybody went there. Joni Mitchell and the Doors and Frank Zappa and Stephen Stills and David Crosby. And we, we all had places. Chris Hillman. I remember uh, Chris had a, a house in in uh, Laurel Canyon and his motorcycle caught fire and it burned the house down. And I had a new video recorder. I recorded it and <laughs> I got it on ABC News. And then the insurance company said, oh, you just burned it down for publicity. Wow, that's an interesting. Roger McGuinn doing a wonderful job here. All right, turn, 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 Pete Seeger. Uh, that seemed to be the genesis of that. And that is, you know, I probably, that's the, I mean, that's one of the 10, 15 classic songs of all time. I think that song for the birds is sort of your symbol of your great work there in the 60s. And you came up with it from Seeger. Tell us about that, Roger. Well, I, I'd been a fan of Seeger since the 50s. I used to go see him at Orchestra Hall in Chicago. And uh, I loved I loved the way he could take an audience and make him sing along and get him in three-part harmonies and everything. And I just, I love the banjo. I played banjo and 12-string just like he did. And this is a 12-string right here. And when he, when he first did Turn, 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 he had a story about it. He said, my publisher wrote me a letter in 1959 saying, Pete, you got to stop writing these protest songs because I just can't sell them. And Pete got mad. He said, you got the wrong songwriter. You got to get somebody else. And then he pulled a slip of paper out of his pocket. It said, to everything, there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And he put a tune to it. And he sang it kind of like, everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. It didn't have a beat. So I took it and I put a beat to it like... Everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. And that became a rocket. Boy, did you know at the time when you're pu- when you're putting a song like that together? Does a musician know? My goodness. I found the Holy Grail. This is going to be an all-time classic. Do you have any feel of that when you're putting a song like that together? 
Well, we loved the record once we got it done. And Terry Melcher was our producer, Doris Day's son. And he loved right. it too. But Jim Dixon, our manager, thought, you can't put a religious song on rock radio. People are going to hate it. And so he wanted another Dylan song because I thought it'd be a safe thing to do. But Terry took the single of it up and down the West Coast. And he got it played by Tom Donahue and a lot of DJs up and down the coast. And it got to be a regional hit in California and finally got to be a national hit and international hit. Do you like that? I mean, do you have your do you have your own favorite songs from the Birds era, Roger? Or I mean, does it change on a day to day basis? Do you have four or five that you just love to play and love to sing, love to hear? Yeah, well, Turn, Turn, Turn would be one of them, for sure. I love Tambourine Man. I love Feel a Whole Lot Better. Uh, she Don't Care About Time, a wonderful Gene Clark song. It was on the flip side of a record. Um, uh, My Back Pages, Bob Dylan. Uh, some, some really great songs. Uh, Chimes of Freedom. I, I love the great early song. Dylan stuff. Great yeah. song. Um, I play every day at 5 o'clock. To, uh, not every day, but I mix up some music. And at 5 o'clock for that third hour, I start with my my back pages, but I used a version that you guys did. I happened to be at the show. For some reason, I didn't remember it as well as I should have. I must have had a little something funny when I walked into the <laughs> garden that day. But I was there in 91 for Bob's 30th anniversary when you had Petty and Young and George Harrison, and you started off that little song, and you did the first verse of yeah. my back pages. And I play that every day at five, and I usually play the first two, I want to hear Petty, or the, who loves you, by the way, your influence on him is superb, or the first three verses with Neil Young. But that is one of the classic, if you like music, that to see you, Harrison, Clapton, Young, Petty, and Dylan on the Madison Square Garden set, doing my, my back pages 60 years from now, 100 years from now, that is going to be an iconic song in that setting. Let me hear your thoughts on that. Go ahead. Well, it was a, a super band, you know, and I, that was my arrangement. That, that's why I got to do the first verse because I'd taken Bob's arrangement and souped it up. And uh, then every I had to teach George how to how to sing it. He didn't know that verse. And you know, if you look at the backstage stuff on YouTube, you can see that we're, you know, hanging out and I was yeah. showing showing George how to sing that verse. And it was just so much fun that night. It was, it was one of the highlights of my life, really. And it's, it was like, you know, another one was the Rolling Thunder Review I did with Bob back in the, in the 70s. 70s, yeah. I've watched that. Give us, uh, play the first couple seconds of the My Back Pages. Can you do that, Toppy Head? Can I ask you to do that? Crimson flames die through my ears Growing high and mighty trout Countless fire, flame, and rope Using ideas as my mouth Yeah, we'll meet on it just soon Said I, proud, be seated proud Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Boy, boy, that is phenomenal, that is uh, you know, I was also, I watched it on Thanksgiving, and again, I'm a little younger for it. I didn't remember it at the time, and I know it's a cult movie. So the day before Thanksgiving, I watched Easy Rider oh, with yeah. Fonda and Dennis Hopper, and I hadn't seen it before, and I love the movies. Like, you know, you know me, I'm, I, call, I love the old movies, and, you know, I can break down Humphrey Bogart and all that nonsense. But I watched that. I did not realize that you had done a lot of those songs for that, and then I read some stuff about it. Tell us, Bob Dylan, and I read his book here in the last five months too. He wrote the easy ball, uh, the ballad of, uh, of Easy Rider on a napkin, and he yeah. told Fonda, "Give it to McGuinn. Here, finish it." That's a yeah, fascinating yeah. story, there, Roger. Tell us about that. Okay, well, uh, Peter wanted Bob to write him a song, so he he flew to New York and screened the movie for Bob, in you know a little rental screening room. And there, I guess there were some cocktail napkins there. And Bob wrote down the the river flows, it flows to the sea, wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. Flow, river, flow. And he handed it to Peter and said, "Here, give this to McGuinn. He'll know what to do with it." So Peter got back on the plane, came over to my house, and the napkin was like the Holy Grail. He presented it to me like Bob wants you to have this, man. <laughs> wow. I, made up, I made up a tune for it and I did the second verse and uh, it became the ballad of Easy Rider. And of course, when it came out, I gave Bob a half a credit for it because he wrote half of it. And about three weeks later, I got a phone call, you know, like two or three in the morning. I used to stay up till five. And so it was no big deal. And he said, you know, this is Bob. I, 
take, take my credit off. I don't need the money. And I said, okay. Wow. How about that? Boy, you and Dylan are tight. Boy, you, the relationship with you two is fascinating. Uh, I mean, it really, he respects you so much for what you, I mean, we don't know what a wonderful songwriter he is, but he respects you with your arrangements so much, Roger. That's an incredible honor, the great Bob Dylan. And he respects almost Roger McGuinn as far as putting these songs together, his songs, more than anybody else. How about that? Well, I feel, I feel like he's my older brother. He's about a year and a half older than I am. And, uh, you know, we, you never catch up to somebody who's that much older than you are. You know that feeling? It's like you're yeah, always, I, yes, always I do. A, yeah. You're always, always a kid. You're always a kid. Patrick McEnroe, John McEnroe is a perfect example. Uh, on Eight Miles High, you wrote that song on a plane there. Uh, you liked eight better than six because of the eight hard days night by the Beatles. And somehow the record companies thought you were writing a song about uh, being high. And you really were just writing a song about being eight miles over the ocean coming back from London on Pan Am. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it was really the Gavin report that put out the uh, information that it was a, they did the math and they said, wait a minute, commercial airliners don't fly eight miles high. They must be talking about some other kind of high, man. And <laughs> <laughs> they banned the song, but it got up, I, I guess, to the top 20 somewhere, but it could have gone higher, I think, if it, it hadn't been banned. Is that one of your favorite songs of the birds? That's well, it's one, it's one of my favorite guitar breaks that I did, the the uh, middle part of it, the beginning, the middle, and the end, where I'm playing the, uh, the sort of Coltrane stuff on my Rickenbacker electric 12-string. Uh, were you, um, you know, I know I know Clark left maybe because he didn't like to fly. I've read those stories about Gene Clark. And then, of course, Crosby, you and Hillman had enough of him driving you nuts, and you got him out of there too. Melcher didn't like Crosby, I guess, either. Uh, so here it is. You got this great band, Michael Clark there playing the drums, Hillman, Clark, and Crosby in 64 to 67, 68. And all of a sudden, it's just you and Hillman left. And you got to keep the band together. And then you decide to go to Nashville and do that country western music, which at the time wasn't uh, highly acclaimed. But since then, it's one of the all-time greats. Tell us yeah. about that sequence there for a sec. Go ahead. Okay. Well, Chris Hillman met Graham Parsons in a bank in Beverly Hills. And uh, he brought him over to our rehearsal. And I was still interested in going in the eight miles high direction that John Coltrane. So I, I asked Graham if he could play. He played a little piano. I said, can you play like McCoy Tyner? And he sat down and he played some Floyd Kramer's kind of stuff. And I said, well, the guy's got talent. We can work with him. But I didn't know he was really going to turn into George Jones in a sequin suit. You know, he, he loved country music. And it was infectious. He loved it so much that he got us into it. And we'd done some country before that. You know, we did Satisfied Mind, Porter Wagner. And we, we'd done some Buck Owen stuff. And uh, um, so we, we got into whole hog country music, went down to Nashville and recorded it with just the love of country music in our hearts. You know, there's nothing, I wasn't even thinking about commercial, whether it's going to sell or not. And of course it didn't, it, it fell through the cracks. The rock people didn't like it. The country people didn't like it. Nobody liked it for about 40 years. And then it became probably, you know, the most famous birds album. It got up on, on Rolling Stones uh, list of birds albums. Oh, it did. It did. But when you're yeah. as successful as you are with those great birds albums in the mid sixties, you could take a chance. Who the hell cares? I've already shown that I can write a Hall of Fame, uh, do a Hall of Fame music. I put together a great band. I, I did a part of a soundtrack of Easy Rider. All right, I'm going to take a chance. You don't like it, I don't care. That's the way I would look at it. But you're competitive and you're prideful. You don't like it when the critics at the time don't like an album, even if you're trying to do new things, right? Yeah, it was sad. It was sad that they didn't like it. I remember the country people didn't like it. I walked into a country station in the San Fernando Valley, and I saw the album pinned up to a bulletin board at the end of the hall. And I went, oh, great, they're going to play it. And I got up closer and said, do not play. This is not country. And oh, really? Oh, yeah. that would bother you. Yeah, that would. That, yeah. Uh, did you um, now? I, I don't think you played at any of those rock festivals, Altamont, Monterey. Or Woodstock. I've done a lot of Woodstock recently. You did not. Were you invited? You didn't play. You didn't go there to any of those three or not? We did Monterey. We were you did Monterey. Monterey. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's where Crosby got up and told everybody to take LSD and that Kennedy was, uh, it was like a conspiracy. Right. You know, he got up and did that stuff. But, and then he played with uh, Stephen, Stephen Stills, Stills and those guys. Yeah. Which is fine. You know, I, that wasn't why we were angry with him. He was just becoming so difficult to work with. He, the thing that got me was he said, you guys are not good enough musicians to be playing with me. I went, oh, oh. 
come on. Exactly. Uh, and Melcher didn't love. And, and that's how it works with, with a band, right? I mean, the, the producer who writes the songs is significant. And I guess Crosby didn't get enough of his own songs on these albums. Yeah. Does that tick them off, too? Is that, that, was, that the way that it works? It. it was a conflict with Terry Melcher. Terry didn't like David. David didn't like Terry. And consequently, David's songs were not getting on the Birds albums. And that bothers him. All right, did you uh, did you miss not playing Woodstock? Well, we were doing some other gig. I, you know, I think Woodstock was, um, and, and there was a rumor going around that you wouldn't get paid for it, and it was going to be like a, a failure. But evidently, it was the best thing that ever happened in, in rock and roll, and we missed it. So, well, but, but Monterey, I, Hilma, I had Hillman on with his book. He said Monterey was the best one. He said all the great musicians, the Who were there. He said oh, yeah. that '67 one is almost very underrated because it gets overwhelmed by Woodstock two years later. Is that correct? I think so. You know, I, I remember watching Janice there and Ravi Shankar was there, Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding. It, it was incredible. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. It was a, it was a great uh, show. It was, and uh, Mamas and Papas. We, we had a great time. Uh, the 70s, I, you know, the birds break up there in the early 70s. Uh, you join Dylan. You do a lot of things. Uh, I, I don't know enough about your career you know, and we have to do so many great songs in the 60s. Boy, I tell you, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to live up to it all when you go on your own. What was the highlight? I know you play with Dylan there in the, in the review thing. What is the highlight? What did you do musically from a historical standpoint in the 70s, Roger? Let me hear your thoughts on that. Go ahead. Well, I, I think the uh, the Rolling Thunder review was a highlight. Um, before that, meeting the Beatles, just going to England and meeting the Beatles and the Stones and hanging out with them. Um, Paul McCartney drove us around in his Aston Martin DB5. And, you know, wow. we, we went to these great parties and found out all, all the and stuff and that the Beatles and Stones were friends. They hung out with each other. Yeah, it was just really fun. And then the uh, Rolling Thunder was great. Um, Jacques Levy was my friend. He was uh, co-writer and he and Dylan were working together and they invited me on the tour and I, I almost turned them down because I had some gigs booked with my band but the next day I called my agent and canceled or postponed him and so I could go out on the Rolling Thunder thing and it was really a, a, a great tour it was one of the best ones ever and then well, my wife says well what about you know we've been touring for 40 years what about that and I thought oh that's that's even better you know, do you ever get tired? You know, I know that you still play all over the place now and you haven't had a chance to play recently. I understand that with COVID. Do you ever get tired? I mean, you seem like you're one of those who just loves to play music so much that it's almost like a drug. That It's like me doing a sports talk show. I can't quit because I, 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 this is what I do. Yeah. And, you know, not me comparing myself ever to somebody like you, but I get the idea that no matter what, you need to play, you need to play those guitars, and you need to be in front of any kind of audience just to express yourself. And that's going to go on forever. Is that correct? You got that right. Yeah, I, I don't plan to retire. And uh, this is the longest vacation I've ever had. I've been off for a year now. I did one gig in Jacksonville a month ago, and that was it. That's the only thing I've done all year. And I'm looking forward to getting back on the road when, when it opens up again. I'm fascinated by your love of electronics. Even a GPS, you like to be on planes and look at your GPS and find out what city you're flying over. You yeah. brought up the transistor radio in 56. That got you into uh, Elvis. But your fascination with electronics and all the things you do on the Internet is really something to behold there, Roger. Talk about that. Go ahead. Well, uh, my grandfather was an engineer in Chicago, and he used to take me to the Museum of Science and Industry every Sunday. And I push buttons and watch things were, and, you know, I, I just really got hooked on electronics and gadgets. So that's been a lifelong love of mine. Do you have any explanation is it was it the you know Morrison? I mean, there's so we know all the musicians that just died way too young, uh, over exuberance, whatever it might be. You didn't. You survived. Crosby, who should be dead thirty times, as we all know, <laughs> yeah. he yeah, he survives too. Hillman survives. What is the key to come out of that era? Experiment with drugs. I'm sure everybody did. I did experiment with drugs and still come out the other side 
in pretty good mental shape and have a long life? What is the key? How come you were able to do it and some folks are able to do it and guys like Jim Morrison were not able to do it? What's your take on well, that? Well, I don't know. I, I was not uh, I was not self-restrained. I didn't have a lot of moderation. So, you know, I, I did everything everybody else did except heroin. I didn't get into that. But I did cocaine. And, and uh, of course, everybody did pot. I did a lot of pills like Elvis, you know, speed and uh, downers and I, I did everything but when Elvis died I was uh, 42 no he was 42 years old I was in my 30s and I went he was seven years older than I was and it was a it was a game changer it was a wake-up call and that's what got me to kind of shift gears wow um, yeah. so the Elvis um Petty boy he loves you uh, you know, uh, the poor Tom Petty I've seen some documentaries where you were an incredible influence on Petty and he's an all-time great. That guy make you feel pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. And Tom and I were really good friends. You know, we, we met back in 76 when I heard his American Girl. And, and the vocal tone of it was something like my voice. So I was kidding my manager. I said, when did I record that? And he said, it isn't you. And I said, I know. I know. It's a great song. Who is it? And I got to meet Tom the next day and invited him to come to New York and play the bottom line with, with us. You know, I, I had a band. And we, we've been friends ever since. And I... I went on the road with him with Dylan in, in 87, and we wrote King of the Hill together in uh, Sweden, and he recorded it with me on my Back From Rio album, and we've just been friends all this time. I used to go over and hang out hang at his house, and George Harrison would come over all the time, and we, we just you know had a good time playing guitars and stuff. Uh, I love the traveling Wilburys, and I must have been in La La Land in 88. I was in Jacksonville, Florida, trying to get a radio job, so I, I lost track of them. That was a hell of a band, and Oberson died, as we know. Did they ask you to be in that band, Roger, uh, with well, those no, great, no, great ensemble? They, no, they really didn't ask me to be in. I was working uh, on writing songs. I was in L.A. at the time, and George did invite me over to the house, but uh, I was busy writing songs in L.A. for my Back From Rio album. All right. Uh, Dylan, uh, Mr. Tambourine Band, All I Really Want. Um, that's a, give me a Dylan cover that you guys did that we haven't yet discussed that you love. Go ahead. Let me hear. Well, all I really want to do is like, I ain't looking to compete with you, beat or cheat or mistreat you, pacify you, simplify you, deny, defy, or crucify you. All I really want to do friends with you <laughs> and I remember that's, a, that's a great song uh you know you know what song that you did that was wonderful is that chestnut mare which you oh. did a little later right i don't know what year that was i yeah. have all my little birds greatest hit songs going on on my little car radio and i and I've, it's a different kind of song but boy that's a wonderful song and that is one of your specialties too tell us about that Okay, well, I met Jacques Levy at the Fillmore East in 1968, and he was a Broadway director, and he was writing a play for Broadway. He wanted it to be a country rock musical, and he asked me if I would write the score for it, and I said, sure. So we came out to L.A., and we worked for a few weeks and wrote 26 songs, and it was loosely based on Heinrich Ibsen's Pierre Gant. And there's a scene in Pier Gant where he goes off a cliff on a reindeer. Well, we moved that to the Western United States and we changed the reindeer into a horse, into a chestnut mare. And uh, that, that's the story of how the song, it, a lot of people love horses and they say, oh, that's my favorite song. You must really love horses. And I tell them that story and they're, oh, and they go, oh, man. I'm they want a Seabiscuit story and they don't get it. <laughs> <what> they, <laughs> they, they want a Secretariat story. What was, um, for the 60s, what was more significant for you folks in Laurel Canyon? Was it the Kennedy and all the assassinations, Martin Luther King, or was it the Vietnam War? I think the worst thing that happened was the, um, <clears throat> was the thing that, that happened uh, with Tate and LaBianca and, uh, you know. Oh, the Charlie Manson. Okay, the, interesting. The Manson stuff, yeah. I think that was the worst thing. That brought the whole scene down, and not just in the canyon, but uh, everywhere in the world. You know, the, the whole uh, love and peace thing just destroyed it. Wow, that Manson, which was, uh, what, August of 69. So, that, yeah. the, yes, and yeah. took him three months. Uh, I mean, yeah, that Kennedy, is. The Kennedy assassination was horrible. And I, I wrote a song about that that night. You know, he was a friend of mine. I took an old folk song and rewrote it to be about Kennedy. 
and, and that was a, a strong thing. And then uh, the Vietnam War was strong. We, and in the birds, we did a couple of protest songs. We, we did something called Draft Morning, which was about Vietnam. Yeah. About a kid get, yeah, getting uh, it, going to the draft board that day. So, but did, and then, did it bother you? Did it bother you at all, or any of the bird members that uh, Crosby joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash there? And for about three or four years, they were a super band and a big time band. Did that bother you that he was once with you, and here it is now, five, six, seven years later, he's doing stadium tours of seventy-five thousand people? I can't say it really bothered me. It was I was I was really happy for him. I was glad he got another gig. So you were happy for that. Okay. Um, and Hillman's had an incredible career too. And you're still close to him and you go around with him and tour with him all the time. And Hillman's had an interesting life. You know, he teamed up with the Parsons thing. That didn't work out. He went yeah. into the country. He went into the country genre. But, you know, he, his father killed himself when he was a young man, when he was 16 years of age. So he had that tragedy yeah. early. Hillman is a very interesting figure pretty sane and you've been close to him since 1960 61 roger talk about chris Hillman for a sec well uh, i've known chris for over 50 years and i didn't know some things about him until i read his book too i, I didn't know he had a horse when he li- lived in uh in right. down in southern california and i didn't know he had a little motorcycle and i didn't know a lot of the bands that he played i knew about the scottsville squirrel barkers because that's such a funny name and I asked him, what does that mean? He said, well, uh, a couple of guys in the band were from the South, and they say when you go squirrel hunting, you don't want to shoot the squirrel because you kind of destroy it. So you hit the bark next to the squirrel, and it knocks it off the tree. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Funny. Uh, I love the video of you and Springsteen there, turn, turn, turn in Houston about eight, nine years ago. Uh, was that an impromptu? Or you just happened to be in town? Did he set yeah. that up? Tell us about okay. that. Yeah, I was home uh, off the road, and little little Stephen called up and said, uh, "You know, Bruce would like you to come to the show." I said, "Okay." So, and they sent a car, and we went to the show. And th- then they said, "Well, Bruce would like you to do a couple of songs with him." I said, "Fine." So I borrowed little Stephen's Rickenbacker, and we got up and did uh, "Tambourine Man" and "Turn, Turn, Turn," and it was great. It was so much fun. Do you follow music carefully today, all the bands and all the music that comes out? Do you, do you go back to Europe era, or do you still follow it today? Very, I mean, you know who's going to win the Grammy Awards and all those kinds of things, or do you stick to your own generation? I have to confess I don't. No, I don't. I listen to a lot of jazz and classical. You are just a, you're a musical savant, Roger, is what you are. I mean, you are, uh, you are, and you're in the Hall of Fame. How exciting was that in 91 when you got into the Hall of Fame there with, uh, I've seen the speeches, you played Mr. Tambourine Man there in Cleveland. How about getting into the Hall of Fame? As you said in your speech, I never dreamed that I would be in the same Hall of Fame as Elvis Presley. Yeah, that's right. I, I never did. You know, I was riding my bike around Chicago with a transistor radio, and there I was in the Hall of Fame with him. It was some. It was something, and uh Oh, it was John Lee Hooker was was uh, in that night, too. And we, we all got together. The original birds were all sitting together at the same table and it was friendly. And we all got up on stage and did a Mr. Tambourine Man. It was a good night. Think about it. Uh, playing the troubadour, Roger, I'll end on this note. Playing the troubadour, you're doing some Beatles songs. And here comes Gene Clark backstage. You know, I like what you're doing. And that, and, and uh, you had a lot of good background prior, the Darren thing and all the things that you did in Greenwich Village, but that conversation triggered a career. You know that? Yeah, it was. That was a, um, the genesis of the birds. It was the beginning of it. And then Crosby coming in while we were rehearsing and working on songs, that, that's what made the birds happen. Uh, I right, give us, uh, give us another little verse of one of your favorites, any song you want here. The fans would love to hear you do lose something. Go ahead, pick it. Tell us what it is and just play it for us. Okay. Let me get some picks. I'll be right with you. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Roger will get some picks in here. Play us something else here. Roger McGuinn. It's great to have him with us. I'm keeping him way too long, but, uh, you know, as a result of having a rock and roll hall of famer on, we'll make sure he finishes up on this, uh, particular note. He's got some picks. He's got so many guitars. I'm watching this on zoom. It's incredible what he has in his office. He's got every guitar known to man. This is a uh, musical savant. All right, Roger, go ahead. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of running. Is there hope for the future? See the brown bells of Merthyr Who made the mine owner See the brown 
song uh what was that 64 65 when was that written bells and remnants well um pete seeger came up with it it was from a poem by idris davies a, a a guy from wales about a mine disaster and pete put the tune to it and he used to do it in the 50s in his concerts and i i knew it from in fact i recorded it with judy collins on her third album for electra in new york and uh, ah. I, I know the song for a while so i was I was on the road and somebody asked me if I knew the song. And that was another song that Pete used to do, kind of like, Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells. It didn't have a real beat to it. So I put that rock, rock beat to it. And Chimes of Freedom is one of the all-time classics, too. Roger, I can tell you, talk to you. Go ahead. Give me Chimes of Freedom for a second. That's a great song. Between sundown's finish and midnight's broken tone, with death inside the doorway, thunder crashing. As majestic bells are both struck shadows in the sound, the seamen to be the chimes of freedom flashing. Flashing for the warrior whose strength is not to fight, and flashing for the refugees on the unarmed roads of life, and for each and every underdog soldier in the night. And we gaze upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Wow. Roger, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. I've done a lot of radio interviews for the last since 1983. Uh, this is going to be one of the all-time highlights. You did a wonderful, wonderful job, and I really, really. I know our audience does too. It's a sports audience you're talking to. But I really, really appreciate all this time. You did a wonderful job. Stay healthy, most importantly. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Chris. It was fun. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.